In today's world, we have legends in sports, entertainment, business, and technology. For instance, Elon Musk is well known for his passions, innovations, and impressive pursuits. He founded his own internet company. He helped create PayPal. He started Tesla, which makes electric and autonomous vehicles. He also is actively trying to get humans on Mars by the end of 2025 with his company SpaceX and is even working on a brain chip that would help people with paralysis use iPhones with their mind and has even recently posted a video of a monkey playing a video game with his mind. Yet despite all of these accolades, Elon Musk isn't a mountain man. He's not a fur trapper, a guide, a cook, saddle maker, Indian agent, or a colonel in the U.S. Army like the legendary Kit Carson. Today, we'll explore the life of a notorious explorer. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, culture, and fun stories, I've got a great show in store for you, so stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Also, please visit our sponsor, thetailoredhemp.com. CBD is completely legal in all states. I use it to help me sleep. Forget the rest. Go to the best. TheTailoredHemp.com So, Carson's early life. His dad died when he was nine, and he ultimately made the choice to stop going to school so he could help his family. After all, his mom had ten kids. Leaving school that early left Carson illiterate, something that he'd later regret. But ironically, his image and personal conquest would eventually be featured on some of the most popular dime novels of the time. Carson became an apprentice saddle maker starting at age 14, but before long he could saddle up himself and began his travels westward. In 1826, Carson ran away from home and joined a group of fur traders who were headed to Santa Fe, New Mexico. As a teen, Carson worked multiple jobs driving wagons, mining copper, and translating Spanish for the mountain men after traveling the Santa Fe Trail to his eponymous destination. He joined Ewing Young's party of 40 trappers and began learning the trade and exploring the territories he dreamed of when he was a boy. Carson would also spend some time learning how to speak Spanish and French during the time of his life that he was traveling the West and was described to being brave but not reckless, under the average stature and a rather delicate looking man, nevertheless a quick, wiry man with nerves of steel and possessing an indomitable will full of caution, but showing a coolness in the moment of supreme danger that was good to witness. Wow, that's something to say about uh, another person. I hope uh, hope people say that great, kind of nice thing about me. Carson explored the territories of Arizona and California while learning to trap beaver under Young's command, something I think we all should experience, especially if you decide to live in the middle of nowhere and Domino's doesn't deliver. In 1831, Carson began growing in the in the world of trapping. Not the type of trapping you hear in rap songs today, of course. Carson met another fur trader during this time named Thomas Fitzpatrick and joined his party to head into the elevated terrain of the beautiful Rocky Mountains. Carson had graduated to the big leagues and is now a full-time trapper and a genuine mountain man. I assume he had a great beard, too. We can only believe it, right? I know I would. They traveled through the Rockies and out to the headwaters of the Missouri River. This experience helped mold Carson into a seasoned and 
trustworthy guide, something Carson had always aspired to be. He then started making a name for himself, and his services were becoming in high demand. Carson would do that profession for a little over a decade, and as the fur demand dried up and the silk material became more popular, Carson knew it was time to jump ship and start down a different path. While aboard a steamship on the Missouri River, he met the esteemed John C. Fremont, a United States Army officer who hired Carson as a guide for $100 a month. That was pretty decent money back then. The two men would make three treacherous and thrilling trips across the Oregon Trail. Try saying that three times out loud. Jeez. So, Fremont and Carson shared a lot of similarities in life. Both of their fathers died at a young age, and both came from humble beginnings. Fremont, fortunately, had a formal education and was lucky that it didn't stop the immediate bond that they had. The first of the three expeditions was into uh, charted and uncharted territories of the West. First, they went through the south pass of the Oregon Trail in present-day Wyoming. After five months, the mission was complete and Fremont was able to write reports on the trail, which got the attention of more travelers headed out west. My closest experience is survival training in the military. Not skills I use frequently now. I think I'll just stick with Google Map and Waze for right now anyway. On their second expedition, they'd map out the rest of the trail from the Southern Pass, Wyoming, to the Columbia River in Oregon. They also traveled to Utah, California, and Nevada. While on their mission, Carson was able to use his mountaineering skills to find resources and locate other travelers with supplies whenever they started running low. Carson was also able to track down two Native Americans accused of ambushing and killing a group of travelers. This guy was really, really good at tracking. All this running around reminds me of a couple I know. The wife went into labor and gave birth on the way to the hospital. The husband was so flustered and anxious when they got to the hospital, the nurse asked what the baby's name was. All he could say was, Carson. Ha! <laughs> Dad joke done. So, here's where it really gets interesting. On their third mission, Carson and Fremont made a track from California to Oregon. During this mission, the group consisted of 60 men and ended up providing information to President Polk, who was ambitious to take... Uh, California from Mexico. In 1846, while on the third expedition, Carson and Fremont became part of the Bear Flag Revolt. Fremont's first encampment was set up a few miles from Sutter's Fort, where they dis the discovery of gold would bring about the gold rush. The gold rush, I'm sure you've heard of it, and maybe even imagine what it's like. Everyone becoming millionaires and just being super happy. That's the gold rush, right? Sounds exciting, right? Well, quite the opposite, actually. Very low amounts of millionaires, and life was a cycle of hard, thankless labor, labor and stifling boredom. In fact, there was roughly one woman to every ten men. What's all the gold in California worth if you don't have someone to share it with? Sounds like hell to me. Prospectors, for the most part, didn't just wander up a hill step onto a couple of gold nuggets and go home rich. They toiled for hours in the dirt and mud under the scorching hot sun and usually went home empty-handed. And this was way before Netflix, so it's not like there was much to do after work anyway. They couldn't read either, or many of them couldn't, 
because printed material was difficult to obtain in the mining camps and it usually cost a premium. And of course, there was that pesky literacy issue, right? These miners being bored was something of a problem during the gold rush. Try this little experiment for a few weeks if you're feeling adventurous. Go outside, spend your day digging a hole. Then come back home, don't turn on the TV, and don't read anything. Now imagine, with this lack of entertainment, someone has told you that a bull is going to fight a bear a couple of blocks down. I bet 20 bitcoins you'd go. And bull versus bear fights were like the gold rush's version of real housewives. <laughs> How would they do it? Well, they chained this bull up next to a grizzly bear, and then the spectators would stand back to see what happened. Miners would bet on the outcome, and everyone would have such a good time watching the two animals just go head-to-head -head in combat. This would make a cool story of why the stock market uses terms like bull market and bear market, but upon further research, they call it bull market and bear market due to the fact that bulls attack by bucking their horns up toward the sky, while bears attack by swiping their claws down toward the ground, suggesting that the words are taken from the animal attack movements to describe the, the uh, price movement in the market. Not as cool as a gold rush bull and bear fight by far. Here is a fascinating story that comes from the gold rush days that has to do with one of our main focal points for the show. Fortunately, modern day folks don't have to dig graves for their friends and loved ones, which is cool because digging a grave would totally suck. But back in the gold rush, funeral homes and corners and morticians just weren't common. So when someone died, it was up to their friends to make sure that he got a decent burial. No one ever looked forward to digging a grave, and if you did, well, maybe you were in the right place, away from most civilization. This unpleasant task actually resulted in good fortune for at least one miner. This was a man named Oliver Martin. According to the New York Times, Martin and his companion were sleeping in a cabin next to a stream when they were, when they were surprised by a flash flood. Martin survived, but his, his companion did not. Even though he has sustained severe injuries, he felt he owed his friend a decent burial, so he picked a spot next to an uprooted tree and started to dig. That was when he discovered the Oliver Martin Chunk which at the time was the largest gold nugget ever found in California. This rock weighed 151 pounds. It sold for $20,270. If you move that to today's market, that's $560,000. <laughs> I'd say that that was a good day at work. Martin who was a bit on the heavy drinker side, took the, took the discovery as a sign from God and gave up alcohol. He later went on to earn a fortune in quartz mining and died a millionaire, though it would not be at all surprising to hear he at least briefly considered a career as a gold, as a grave digger. As a gold digger. No, that was the girls trying to go out with him. Whole nother story. He defiantly went out on top of his profession. Way to go, Martin. So back to the legend of Kit Carson. Fremont, at this time of the gold rush, began to promote patriotism for the United States and started urging farmers, hunters, and mountain men in different parts of California to cause an uprising. 
Remember, it was part of Mexico back then. The Americans were asked to leave the territory, before, but they refused. This led to days of violence and the Americans seizing more land. Independence was declared for Mexico, and they announced a new California Republic. A picture of a grizzly bear and a red star were raised on a flag in Sonoma, and men became known as bear flaggers. You may be familiar with this flag because it's used on a lot of t-shirts and hats to, in today's culture. And that's where it originated. During all this, Fremont was impressed with Carson saying he would have been a better field marshal than a frontier trapper. Eventually, Carson was sent to Washington, D.C. to deliver reports of what happened to President Polk. The Bear Flag Revolt led to the Mexican-American War. During this time, Kit Carson was sent on secretive missions that saved the U.S. Army in California. In September 1846, Carson was on his way to Washington with more news of a rebellion in California. After getting past the Rocky Mountains, Carson ran into General Kearney, who ordered Carson to change his course and guide his men back toward San Diego because they were lo low on supplies. While on their way, they were attacked by Mexican soldiers. Kearney, in a, in a panic, realized he needed more men and sent Carson on a dangerous mission by himself, having him hike 25 miles back to San Diego to get reinforcements. Carson faced the possibility of capture by Mexican soldiers the whole way, but completed the trek in two days. He was able to send in reinforcements who defeated the Mexican soldiers and head back to San Diego. Carson's bravery and experiences as a mountain man helped America win the Mexican-American War and added to his fame among the settlers. Kit Carson's legacy began to expand in dime novels documenting how Carson traveled to the Rockies, traversed the Oregon Trail, and fought off Native Americans and became part of the consequential movement in American history. His stories started to take on a life of their own. Authors would pen pulp fiction and dime novels, which allowed Carson to become known all over the country. He was seen as a brave frontiersman and a true hero by American settlers due to the highly exaggerated stories based on the most exciting and dangerous moments of his life. Black Hawk Museum mentions that the first story about Carson, it was called An Adventure of Kit Carson, A Tale of the Sacramento, was printed in the popular magazine Holden's Dollar. According to True West magazine, Charles Averill's Pulp Fiction, Kit Carson was Prince of the Gold Hunters. He wrote Carson as a mass killer of Native Americans and credited him as the man who discovered gold in California. In other pulp, he was described as someone who could pull off things that most humans just couldn't, like riding on horseback holding a beautiful woman under one arm while fighting off natives with the other. Psst, I can do that. So, when Carson finally saw some of these tall tales about him, he modestly replied, That there may be true, but I ain't got no recollection of it. Good answer, Kit. According to the Atlantic, Carson would eventually join the Union Army and fight against the Confederates. In 1861, gold miners in Colorado would volunteer their services and risk their lives by joining the Union Army. Nearly 3,000 Texan Confederate troops were on their way to New Mexico, hoping to capture the territory along with California, 
which had gold mines and ports to the uh, Pacific Ocean. Carson, always ready for action, would organize the 1st New Mexico Volunteer Infantry Regiment and be promoted to colonel. Shortly after, Carson and his men were ready for war and fought against the Confederates in the bloody Battle of Valverde in 1862. Carson's regiment put up a fight but would ultimately lose, allowing the Confederates to take Albuquerque and Santa Fe. While Carson may have lost the battle, soldiers from the 1st Colorado Infantry and Army regulars would fight the Confederates at Glorita Pass, New Mexico, destroying wagons with their supplies. The Confederates stood little chance of making it through, and the harsh terrain and climate took even greater toll on them, which led to a win for the Union Army and an end to the Confederates' hopes of expanding westward. Ironically, right before Carson was in the Battle of the Civil War, was part of the Battle of the Civil War, 1853 to be specific, he had begun to use his efforts to aid and assist the Native Americans by serving as an agent in the Office of Indian Affairs. Carson helped several tribes, made peace with the natives, and had a heart for them, but because of this heart, Carson would come into conflict with his superior. That was Territorial Governor David Merriweather. Carson doubted Merriweather's ability to form good relations with the natives while Merriweather doubted Carson's competence as an agent to, to him being illiterate. Stay in school, kids. That's the lesson here. The two would feud with each other and make harsh comments about each other for years. Their relationship grew so bitter that Merriweather would undermine Carson by trying to ruin his career and reputation as a backcountry man. Carson went against Merriweather's orders and gave more sheep to the Native Americans than he was instructed, and then made Merriweather hide with him under a bank of the river after the news of a possible impending Navajo attack. Carson knew the natives better than Merriweather and told him that if they didn't hide, they'd, cer they'd certainly be killed. Merriweather found the perfect opportunity to ruin Carson by suspending him for, dis for disobedience of orders, insubordination, and cowardice in the presence of Indians. Carson dedicated to helping the natives at the time, later apologized and was given back his job. So, let's fast forward some years of violence, war, and repercussions. His hopes of helping Native Americans and the good nature as a peacemaker would end as a new wave of terror would rain down upon the natives. Carson followed his orders this time and didn't. he did unspeakable things. And as PBS writes, in 1864, he started rounding up Navajo and making them walk 300 miles to Bosque Redondo, New Mexico. This infamous march was known as the Long Walk. He and his troops would eventually kill Navajo men and hold women and children as prisoners. History mentions that Carson's troops marched through the heart of Navajo territory and destroyed their crops, their orchards, and their livestock. In their livestock, the Navajos' resources were decimated in addition to their spirits being broken and their defenses were completely brought down. They were unable to defend themselves against the Ute, the Pueblo, the Hopi, and the Zuni, who took advantage of their enemy's weakness by following the Americans on the warpath. The Navajo would remain on the reservation where they would be ravaged by disease until 1868.
Carson's last days were notable. Carson left the Army in 1867 and moved to a small town in Colorado with his family. He hoped to start a ranch and begin a brand new life. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to. His health was declining and his third wife, Josepha, died two weeks after childbirth. They had eight kids. He was heartbroken, sick, and tired. Carson died on May 23, 1868, at the age of 58, in Fort Lyon, Colorado. His last words were, Wish I had time for one more bowl of chili. Now that's a man after my heart. A man who was a fur trapper, Rocky Mountain guide, soldier, rancher. You could hardly blame a guy for wanting one more manly meal on his deathbed. He wanted one final rib-sticking dinner after a long day out in the mountains and trenches and battlefield. You go, Kit. As we mentioned, Carson was responsible for many atrocities against the Native Americans while also helping them live in peace and secure their traditions. He helped fight for America and expanded its borders. He inspired many people and is known by many as the greatest mountain man of all time. As one historian said, Carson was a pretty decent chap, and he did have some rather exciting adventures. That's a lot to put on a tombstone, but not in a bad way is it a, the way to go out. So, when we eat our next bowl of chili, let's enjoy it with Carson's life on our hearts and minds. Let's switch gears here. Some of us may have heard the wrestler, The Undertaker. Some of us may be familiar with where that name originated. The Undertaker is a career that came into being when towns were first created. Traveling pioneers buried their family members near the place of their death and then continued on their journey, which there just wasn't time to stay and mourn the dead was the reasoning behind that. I mean, it was dangerous out there. Can you imagine? Pioneers left the east and headed west as quickly as possible to avoid snowstorms. They also buried the dead quickly because in the early to mid-1800s, there was no known way to preserve the bodies, and the human body decays pretty rapidly. So in today's world, that means if you died, say, playing soccer, you'd get buried right there on the soccer field. <laughs> okay. I'm glad things have progressed some. I don't want to be buried on the soccer field. I'm sure you can assume this, but the job of the town undertaker was not easy and i'm certain it's still a difficult painful task even today in the days of the old west however many towns didn't have an undertaker most undertakers were furniture makers or doctors that were doing double duty aka they had a side gig it being a side hustle i looked to see if it could be a career option now the undertaker's definitely not listed on linkedin think though it is logical to assume that some of the townsfolk would turn to someone who already had the tools and the wood available to make their coffins. Preserving the bodies was relatively new technology in the 1800s. The bodies were first soaked in arsenic or alcohol, and it took about three pounds per body. That's a lot of fluid. There are stories of family members who were preserved in a barrel of whiskey until they could be, let's say, properly barreled properly buried properly barreled i gotta remember that one johnny walker black may be a whole new meaning as far as me for me now 
Formaldehyde was actually discovered in 1859 by a Russian chemist, Alexander Butlerov, in 1859. Formaldehyde was made, made, it made the preservation of bodies for anyone possible, regardless of their wealth or social status. Not surprisingly, formaldehyde, a gas that was discovered that dissolves in water, also has an alcohol base. It stabilizes the bacteria that invade flesh, muscle, and tissue and body organs and reduces the rate of decay. Unfortunately, embalming fluid was also dangerous for the undertaker. Exposure to formaldehyde can cause lung cancer, bronchitis, and eventually even possibly death. The invention of formaldehyde was important to the business of the undertaker. In fact, you could say it made their business a business. It certainly made it far more profitable. By postponing the decay of the body, families could wait longer to bury the deceased until other family members arrived to say their goodbyes. This opened a new opportunity for elaborate funerals and created a booming business for the undertaker. One could say that formaldehyde was the spark that created the opportunity for undertakers to create a thriving business out of what once was just a job that they were unwillingly thrust into because no one else wanted to do it. It's still a sad, morbid business, but finally, a profitable, sad, morbid business. And by the way, my experience with Korean beer is very finite, but I can tell you that there's this one out there that they clean the bottles with formaldehyde, and you can taste it. You can taste it on the bottle. I wonder if that beer is still on the market. Have you ever been to a graveyard with its own gift shop? Well, if not, you have a chance to go now because it turns out that there are a number of Boot Hill cemeteries in the West and they're actually named Boot Hill because many of their inhabitants died violently with their boots on. But of all the Boot Hill cemeteries, none are as famous as the Boot Hill in Tombstone, Arizona. And guess what? They've got a gift shop. It's, it's a tough looking place. It doesn't have a lawn. It's just gravel, skeet trees, and cactuses. The graves are covered with stones to keep varmints away from digging up the bones. Boot Hill was open only from 1878 to 1884. It took just six years to fill up the, those graves. Many of those graves are filled with persons unknown. As Boot Hill manager Dave Askey points out, People back then didn't carry social security cards or driver's license. Typically, what would happen when someone died was the mortician would put them on a cooling board in front of his office, Askey says, and people customarily would walk by for two days to see if they could identify the body. Wow. The markers that, could, that do contain names often offer a catalog of violent deaths in the Old West. For instance, Colleen, 1880, shot by Frank Leslie. Huh, that might be a name, you know. Red River Tom, shot by Ormsby. Marshal Fred White, 1880, shot by Curly Bill. And then there's the unfortunate George Johnson, remembered with this epitaph. Here lies George Johnson, hanged by mistake in 1882. He was right. We was wrong, but we strung him up, and now he's gone. He was stopped, they thought. He'd stolen a horse, Askby tells the story. So they strung him up and found out later that he'd legally purchased it. 
Sorry, George. So, what do they sell at this gift shop? T-shirts, posters, mouse pads with a um, with a graveyard's most famous epitaph, which is "Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more." I'm sure you've heard it. In 2011, 146,000 people visited Boot Hill in Arizona. Admission's free, but bring them some money for the gift shop because there's going to be something you want to take home. Could you imagine being buried in a place that sells t-shirts and mouse pads with your name and the cause of death on it? Hey, there's something for everybody, I guess. So let's slide into the recipe because you know I'm really here about the food. I'm going to give you the ingredients first, and this is actually a pretty short recipe. And if you haven't guessed already, it's definitely going to be chili. And I've got some, let's call them secret ingredients in there. If you want to talk about this, remember you can always reach us on Facebook and Instagram. More than glad to talk to you about it. Alright, so three tablespoons of avocado oil, one large onion chopped, three pounds ground beef, four each 16 ounce cans of chili beans with, with the liquid, got to remember that liquid, 28 ounce can of mild Rotel tomatoes with the liquid, one 28 ounce can of petite diced tomatoes, two each 28 ounce cans of tomato sauce. All right, you ready? 12 ounce bottle of Dr. Pepper. One each one ounce packet of dry ranch dressing. One each one ounce packet of taco seasoning. Three tablespoons of garlic powder. Three tablespoons of black pepper. Three tablespoons, three tablespoons of salt. Two ancho chili powder tablespoons and two tablespoons of cumin. So heat your oil over medium heat. Sweat the onions, which means, you know, they're, they're going to kind of look glazed. It's going to take two to three minutes. Add the ground beef and brown. Salt and pepper to taste. Now add the other ingredients one at a time and stir it so that all the ingredients incorporate as you add them. <laughs> now here's the hard part. You ready? Let it simmer for an hour. Turn that heat all the way down. Cover it. Walk off. Come back occasionally just to stir it to make sure it's not sticking to the bottom. But all you got to do is let it sit. Now, here's the interesting thing about chili. And, of course, a lot of stews, if you don't already know this, sure, they're great to eat as soon as you make them. But if you have the patience, put that sucker away and eat it tomorrow night or even two days later. Because you give that stuff time to marinate, the flavor just comes out. And believe me, you're going to like this chili. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by listeners like you, and I really appreciate your support. Shout out today to Eric Walquist, Darren Levi, Ernie DeWitt, John Stanley, and Chris Frazee. In the world, if the world comes to an end, this group of preppers is downright ready. Thanks, guys, for listening to the show. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Until next time, enjoy the chili and stay lively.